This was a project that I entered into with a particular immediacy for myself and my research. I've been working on Augustine for, uh, extensively for years. I've worked on his cosmology. I specialize in both his, uh, in two areas of his work, his sermons and his commentaries on Genesis. And I actually awoke out of a deep sleep one night, in the middle of the night. I'd been thinking about some issues during that day. And it was one of those times when I awoke where I had an immediate sense if you will, of, a, of an intellectual problem. It was more than an intellectual problem. It was really a, a deep spiritual, theological, and intellectual problem all at once. Because I had already been working for years with scientists and supporting sciences within uh, evolutionary reflection and working on my Augustine theology and, and reflect, uh, working and analyzing different aspects of Augustine theology. I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, wait a minute, can I hold... Augustine's theology, particularly his areas that he works in in privation theory. You have to understand for Augustine, the problem of evil is centermost in his thought. It is, I don't know a work of Augustine, a, a substantial work of Augustine that doesn't in one way or another engage the problem of evil. Could I engage his approach to the problem of evil as privation and maintain my commitment to and support of evolutionary sciences and maintain these with, both with integrity? Or was I uh, either being a hypocrite or caught in some sort of contradiction I hadn't uh, conceptualized yet? And so I entered into this research and this project came out of that middle of the night reflection of wanting to understand, well, I have to change something. Does something have to really substantially change and how would I, where, which direction would I go? Because as I have here on this slide, as you'll see that um, biological, geological, astronomical evidence, uh, to name a few, argues substantially for and gives massive indications of change, decay, violence, uh, as endemic to the world as we know it. That we wouldn't have a world as we know it without violence, without decay, without change. Um, how we can't account for production, productive life on this planet without that. Uh, how could we have it without the motion of the tectonic plates, uh, which then gives us earthquakes and other impact? In order to understand how we've evolved, how, how, how the earth exists as it does, we have to acknowledge a central place for what we would call violence. Yet at the core of Augustine's theology and the Augustinian theological tradition, we have an approach to evil marked by privation theory, which on the face of it suggests that there is a primal purity and a fall which, account, which erodes, corrodes, destroys that primal purity. So do these two statements cancel each other out? Or is there an actual contradiction? Now, I have to tell you where, partly where this came from. Let me begin by saying my, uh, my education in Augustine uh, was excellent. Now, whether I'm an excellent Augustine scholar is another question. I'm not suggesting that. That's for others to judge. But the, my area of study, I worked under two of the most important scholars in the Anglo-American world of Augustine, uh, Robert Marcus and then Gerald Bonner. Uh, I had unimpeachable uh, sources of my, for my education, uh, which for which I'm very grateful. They never taught me this, by the way. And yet there are many out there who would say that, who have implied that for Augustine, or argued explicitly like John Hick, that for Augustine, violence comes into the world as a result of the human fall. You say again, for multiple numbers of philosophers, theologians, systematic theologians, historical theologians, 
they would say that for Augustine, violence enters, all violence enters the world as a result of the fall. And this shows up in book, Hick's book, uh, Evil and the God of Love, in particular. Central to Augustine's thought is this notion of uh, alienation or dislocation. You can see this uh, wrapped around, for example, the confessions all throughout the storyline of the confessions. Uh, we are alienated. That is the, the, the core human problem is that we're alienated. We begin by becoming alienated from God. Alienation's source is our alienation from God, from the choices in the garden. If I'm alienated from God, of course, I'm not going to get along with myself in the confessions Augustine says, where was I when I looked for myself? I couldn't find myself, much less find you. I have become a problem unto myself. It's an interesting comment. That word problem is questio. I've become a question to myself. This deep sense of uncertainty, this deep sense of alienation is rife through Augustine's thought. So if I can't get along with God, I'm going to be, I can't, I won't be able to get along with myself. I can't get, and if I can't get along with God or myself, I'm not going to get along with you. And so a third form of alienation, is the alienation from others, social alienation. He plays out that theme and reflects on that in multiple works, of course, most notably, uh, De Civitate Dei. The um, fourth area of alienation for Augustine, though, is particularly interesting. It's the alienation of the cosmos, that the world is alienated. Now, the question becomes, alienated from whom? And that's the core question we have to ask, because what has been commonly interpreted is that the cosmos becomes alienated from God as a result of the fall. And so my question was, wow, what do I do about that? Because how can I account for a fall and yet assert and agree with the sciences that would say that violence is endemic before a fall? That's the investigation that I had to set about. And because I, I was, I'm not sure I'm a king, but I was cornered one way or another uh, in this question mark. I mean, this question, rather. Now, let me just interject here at this point. I'm not trying to offer you the best answer on this question. I, my role is to offer you Augustine's answer on this question. I'm a historian. I do have my views on what's better or what's worse theologically. But in terms of my academic competence and my professional role, it's to try and help uncover what people thought, when, why, and how, and where it altered and how it altered. It's to try and get back to understand the source material in its own right. So as I unravel this question for you, as I unraveled it for myself and present Augustine, I have my views on value or not, uh, but particularly my job is not to suggest what's best. I'll leave that to others, but to try and provide the tools by which people can evaluate uh, the sources that they use for their answer. We have to understand for Augustine, cosmology was a central intellectual preoccupation. It is substantial. Now, uh, let me just, uh, for those trained in modern issues, let me hasten to add that for Augustine, cosmology is a species of metaphysics. It's not an aspect of astronomy. So today, if you're on most any college campus and you use the word cosmology, that would be an aspect of uh, contemporary astronomy. We're not talking about astronomy. Uh, we are talking about the metaphysics underlying the cosmos. And for Augustine, this is a preoccupation. Five different commentaries on Genesis, uh, very extensive amount of work that covers, and what's, what's particularly interesting about it is his works on Genesis cover from the beginning to the end of his career. 
from, he had a 40-year writing career from roughly 389 till his death in 430. And his earliest commentary, De Genesia Manichaeus, uh, started around 390, 391, so right at the beginning of his writing career. And uh, the final commentary are books 11 to 14 of the City of God, and those would have been penned in the early uh, to mid-420s, and uh, as well as showing up again in other works later. He has three dedicated commentaries, part of the City of God, and the last three books of the Confessions are all uh, commentaries. And you could say in some ways, the Confessions as a whole is a commentary on uh, on Genesis as he thinks of himself and present, puts himself in a position of an everyman engaging with the world that God has given in the world and the world in which we find ourselves. And so in some ways, the Confessions, not just the last three books of the Confessions, but really the whole of the Confessions acts as a kind of commentary. And look at this citation list here. I mean, this is Amazing, and I, I I couldn't be bothered to keep counting beyond that. But Genesis one one shows up more than seven hundred times right there. I thought, I'm not going to go on to count Genesis one two and three etc. to see how many times those show up. Just that's in, that's suggestive right there of how important uh, Genesis is to his reflection. Probably the case that Augustine heard his mentor Ambrose six admiral sermons and these played a role in his conversion process. So Genesis uh, played a significant role. In his commentaries and in his reflections on Genesis and the prologue of John and other related texts, some of the, the Psalms that have the more cosmological sensibilities to them, it's clear that he's working out key questions for himself that were persistent throughout his whole life. He works out the notion of creatio ex nihilo, or the phrase he usually used himself, facio ex nihilo. The doctrine of creation ex nihilo was a, has its origins in in Middle Judaism, first and second century BC, particularly Philo, and then gets developed somewhat, but only somewhat, in the second century AD under the the apologists, so there were some early Christians, but wasn't really an doctrinal um, point at that point. It was more of an anti-Gnostic um, hammer, if you will. It didn't play, in other words, it wasn't a fundamental tool in the way they did the theology early on. It's really not until Augustine, in fact, at least in the Latin uh, West, Augustine is the first to begin to use creation ex nihilo as a serious tool for thinking through his theological reflection. If you read through the Latin authors before Augustine, creation ex nihilo certainly shows up. It shows up in people like Tertullian, Victorinus, etc. But none of them are using it as a serious intellectual tool. It is merely an apologetic instrument. And so it's Augustine, for the first time, we begin to find this really evolved as a serious doctrinal position that underlays and suffuses and shapes the way he does his theology. In it, we find two complementary points, the doctrine of double creation, which I'll show some text on in just a moment, and a threefold structure to the cosmos. For Augustine, uh, the, the two moments that he used to reflect Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are suffused by uh, an un, uh, a, a, a pre-timely uh, moment, if you will, that the uh, cosmos has its origin in the mind of God. He uses the notion of ratio, log from the Greek. But these are the ideas in the mind of God. He, he creates this notion for the Latin West, the, the ideas that shape the blueprints, if you will, that shape the cosmos 
are ideas that exist eternally in the mind of God. So that's the background. That's the first step, if you will, of the cosmos. The first moment of creation is the creation of the eternal reasons. This is all for him happens all at once, a moment in, uh, not even a moment in time. It's timeless. It's a simultaneous creation of all, uh, of all these ideas in a, a conceptual creation. And that for him is Genesis 1, interpreting Genesis 1. Genesis was not for him natural history. He didn't, as almost no father did, didn't interpret Genesis as representing natural history. This was a revelation about the order and structure of the cosmos, particularly believe given to, uh, to help the angels understand God's purposes. That's a particularly interesting bit uh, of his thoughts, not commonly held. And Genesis 2, then, is the implementation of the, the physical form of those ideas are implemented into the world. And those are the logoi spermaticoi, the, uh, the, the seminal reasons. So he, he gives us here in uh, De Genesia Literum. So that is his final, his great, his most substantial commentary on Genesis. Not final uh, as in the final product, but to the, uh, if you will, the capstone product of his work on Genesis, even though it was played out uh, later in De Civitate Dei. So he tells us there are two moments of creation, one in the original, when God made all creatures before resting from his works on the seventh day, and the other, the administration, so the, the, the productive activity, if you will, by which his works even now occur. In the first instance, God made everything together without any moment of time intervening. But now he works within the cosmos. Uh, he is working from another text at the same time uh, from the Book of Wisdom that says that God made all things at once. And so he's trying to reconcile the phrase from the Book of Wisdom together with what he reads in De Genesis ad literum. Or sorry, in Genesis. And, and he's reconciling that De Genesis. And we get this sense of this threefold pattern in this next quote. We must therefore make a threefold distinction in speaking of creation. First, there are the unchangeable forms in the word of God. Secondly, God's works from which he rested on the seventh day. So those are the eternal reasons. And finally, the things that he produces from those works even now. And those are the seminal reasons. So for Augustine, he had these three moments. And this is how he can account for both continuity and discontinuity. It's how he brings, if you will, together the, almost a question of the one and the many, though he's not using that language. And he gives us another statement here. One will ask how they were created originally in the sixth day. I shall reply, invisibly, potentially, in their causes, as things that will be in the future that are made, but not yet in their actuality now. Those are the, that's the first day, the first moment of creation of those eternal reasons. Those of you trained in uh, Platonism will certainly recognize uh, the Neoplatonic features of his thinking here. He tells us that God moves his whole creation by hidden power, and all creatures are subject to the movement. Angels carry out his commands. The stars move in the courses. The winds blow. Evil is permitted to try the just. It is thus that God unfolds the generations, which he laid up in creation. Notice here he's reflecting on uh, uh, more broadly, and yet he already has evil entering into the conversation. And we have really for the first time that I'm aware of in uh, the Latin West, the Christian Latin West, the formation of notions of a natural world, the idea of nature. Again, as a, as a coherent doctrine, there had been early, some earlier kinds of comments that you can find statements, but in terms of uh, developing a theological uh, and an analyzed theological position, 
you begin to have this really for the first time with Augustine. So he tells us here, the sacred writer was not ignorant of the nature and order of the elements when he described the creation of visible things that move by nature throughout the universe in the midst of the elements, putting first the luminaries of the heavens, then the living creatures of the waters, and finally the living creatures of the earth. Let me unpack one interesting aspect. It's a bit of a tangent, but let me just unpack, I think, something helpful for us in thinking about here. Augustine is using here language that is deeply stoic in its, uh, in its presentation of the cosmos. And that's something that's important to reflect on uh, as a part of this conversation, because the Stoics were the great physicists of his era. So he is using what would have been understood by his audience as scientifically rich language to describe the cosmos. So his audience, our audiences might not recognize this, but his audience would have recognized it as scientifically rich lingo, appropriately and contemporary scientifically rich lingo, to reflect on the nature of the world around him. Now, he doesn't accept Stoic physics in, uh, in completion because to do that would have meant including some metaphysics that would have been anathema to him. But he, where the Stoic physics falls more towards a description of the universe as opposed to a metaphysical assessment of the universe, of the cosmos, that part he reflects, and he's using that language here. So uh, an interesting point to bear in mind is one reads these writers. And we have that here in this uh, next quote as well, from Dejanesi uh, Book 9. The whole course of nature that we are so familiar with has certain natural laws of its own, according to which both the spirit of life, which is a creature, has drives and urges that are somehow predetermined, which even a bad will cannot bypass. And also the elements of this material world have their distinct energies or qualities, which determine what each or is not capable of. We're jumping down further down the text. Over and above this natural course and operation of things, the power of the creator has in itself the capacity to make all things something other than what their seminal formula prescribed. Not, however, anything without which he did not so program them. What I want you to be pulling out of these texts pertinent to the, what I want to address is the sense that there is a design built in and there's a natural course. This is the beginning of a conversation, what would evolve into the language of secondary causes. We don't have, he's not using that terminology as would come, be, come to be used by the schoolmen. Uh, in particular, he's not using the same terminology exactly, but we have the framing of the conversation at this point. So just to summarize, we have three parts to his cosmology. The underlying eternal reasons that exist eternally in the mind of God. That's the changeless blueprint. We have the creation of the eternal or unchangeable reasons, sorry, the unchangeable reasons, not the eternal reasons, uh, created immediately and simultaneously. And then we have the physio, the, we, at only in the uh, third moment of creation, sorry, the, the third phase of creation, do we have the creation of the seminal reasons, which give us then the first physical or physiological um, that are implanted and replicated. So this provides Augustine with the means for explaining the ongoing governance of activity in nature, as well as a means of divine intervention. So for Augustine, it allows for both continuity, and, and notice he's moving away from a position that requires special divine action for every active moment within creation. This is a step away from his mentor, uh, Ambrose, for example. So you don't need special divine action to account for every particular motion in a cosmos. There is a natural course. There is design. There is, there is a structure that shapes the way it works. 
It also, though, allows for, nonetheless, an intervention of the divine act. So God is neither a removed watchmaker, uh, to uh, use Paley's example, but uh, nor is God an absolute controller of each moment. So there is a moderated position. So he presents the structure to argue for a universe with ongoing operations depend on the continuing pro- providence, presence, and power, um, but and according to a series of natural causes, but also allows for the acts of God. Interestingly, this is a little bit of a tangent because some of you may be wondering about this, tangent to the main topic that I'm addressing, but this is how he accounts for miracles. So when Christ walks on water, it's not a breaking of natural law. These are part of the laws that God has designed. But that was a, a seminal reason that had a one-time use, if you will, that was only unfolded at that moment as a part of God's plan and opportunity. So miracles themselves are not a breaking of the law. They're a revelation of a particular aspect of the law that was otherwise hidden until being used. So it also allows him to uh, both... Um, account for miracles, but account for miracles in a way that it doesn't present a capricious God. And that's critical to him. So what are some implications for the view of nature that helps set up the conversation that I'm going in? He has distanced himself consistently from the position of Manichaean and Gnostic views of cosmos. He conceptualizes a world that's created, that's contingent, that's rational, that's good, capable of being understood. This is the beginning, by the way, as well, of an expanded doc, a conversation about natural reason. Uh, we don't have it in this same, to the same extent in prior authors. It, it becomes a basis for thinking about why one should look seriously at the cosmos. He gets quoted. It's interesting. You find him quoted extensively by a number of the early modern scientists. Galileo cites this work, the De Genesis, extensively, particularly in his work to the Grand Duchess Christiana. So it becomes an important work in thinking through why one would want to study the cosmos. So each ongoing activity of nature of natural providence requires the creator's design, but not necessarily the creator's immediate action. It also is a world that it can experience change without affecting the good or goodness of God. And he is giving us here, of course, what is very critical for his thought, uh, particularly after he escaped from the Manichees, um, that nature is wholly distinct from the creator. It's not enchanted or animated. For the late antique world that Augustine lived in, the cosmos was an animated world, whether it was late antique paganism, and it showed up in some forms of Christianity as well. It was an animated world. That's how they accounted for motion, if nothing else, and, and activity and cataclysm. You know, why Why has the river flooded? You would find within ancient years and thought, well, it flooded because you obviously gave too much attention to the god of the wheat, and the god of the river was jealous. And an animated cosmos was a mechanism for interpreting uh, particularly violent acts in the creation. And Augustine is setting up an opposed view. And that certainly played itself out in Gnostic interpretations. And this also then gives him a way to approach the problem of evil. So for Augustine, this is uh, his approach to evil is not used much in modern uh, philosophy and theology. I have to confess, I don't know how much it plays within contemporary uh, Thomas thought, I find this interesting because I find that really myself a really helpful approach to the problem of evil. For Augustine, evil is best understood as a bravatio boni, a deprivation, a corruption, a corrosion of the good. I really enjoy bicycling and I ride my bike all over Oxford as much as I can. I have several different bikes. 
I keep one old bike because I've had several my good bikes also stolen. I keep one very old bike in my office for when I need to go into town. I had a bike stolen outside of Christchurch when I was running a graduate seminar, you know, right, right on a busy street. I keep this old bike, which I really despise. I also like good mechanical things. And I like things that work well. This old bike has a very awful chain. It's rusty. It's broken down. It squeaks. But my hope and goal, and it's worked so far, is nobody would be interested in stealing it because it's not worth anything. So I keep that for my town bike for commuting. But here's the thing about that bike. As bad as the chain is, as rusty as the whole bike is, as uninteresting and inelegant and beautiful as that bicycle is, it still is an operative bicycle. And that's for Augustine is how we need to understand the nature of the world. That the nature of the world by evil has been corroded. It's been corrupted. Something's corroded is not useless. It has lost some of its elegance, some of its beauty, some of its quality. But it's an undermining of that essential created elegance that defines the world in which we live. God makes something out of nothing, perhaps that's Nilo. Evil is a process, if you will, of undermining, re reacting to, destroying that. For many around the world, the Oxford fantasist Tolkien has really enriched their imagination, particularly since uh, the movies came out. So if you've, uh, you know the story of the Hobbit, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, you will remember that the core creatures that, that day to day face down those who are good are the orcs. <laughs> well, where do orcs come from? They're fallen elves. They're elves that have been corrupted, corroded, twisted. The Oxford fantasists got this idea. They, under, they understood this notion of privation. There is this undermining of the good. God creates everything good. And for Augustine, there's a core essential assumption. To be existed, to be existent, is to have been made by God. So everything that exists is by definition good to the extent that it exists. So evil is the undermining of that existence and therefore the undermining of the good and of the beauty, of the elements of the thing. The only way one can understand evil for Augustine is this corrosion, this deprivation. And there is no such thing for Augustine, certainly, of absolute evil. Because in this under framework, this understanding is the only thing absolute evil would be nothing. Because it would be the, the loss of all good and all existence. And so you have evil is a relative deprivation of the good by varying degrees. So you can have things that are very evil. You should never describe something as being absolute evil, not even the most evil thing one can conceptualize. Because if it became absolute evil, there'd be nothing left. And so this drives his understanding. And this, it's important to understand how this shapes his thinking about the cosmos. It, it is the basis that underlies his approach to hermeneutics and language and his work to Doctrina Christiana and Christian instruction. It's also the basis of the way he conceptualizes the nature of human society and why he thinks that while there is no vera justitia, no true justice to be found in this world, book 19 of the City of God, or no vera pax, no true peace, there are shadowy reflections of that, of the originate form, a derived potential for it. Augustine also thinks significantly in terms of providence. He distinguishes between natural and voluntary providence. And that's an important piece of this. So natural providence uh, follows the way he thinks in terms of the cosmology that I have already outlined for you. There are no accidental forms. The rationes are set, set out the parameters. And voluntary providence for Augustine allows for change, allows for difference, allows for freedom, that God allows certain areas 
that uh, uh, it can allow for accidents, using a philosophical notion of accident, that's outside of God's determination. But there's natural providence that defines the nature of a thing. And the creation of the cosmos follows natural providence, not voluntary providence. That will be important to bear in mind as I come to uh, thinking through this. Now, Augustine distinguishes, more particularly to answer the question that I've raised at the beginning, Augustine distinguishes the darkness of the world with darkness of the demonic and human evil. These are not the same. He, can, he thinks about a darkness of a lack of knowledge versus darkness that is uh, derivative of privation. Wickedness is a perversion, is its form of privation for him. And yet, things that we define as violent, problematic, difficult within nature, don't fall under this category for him. So he describes the poisonous viper as disagreeable indeed to us, and the worm that decays is disagreeable. As, but uh, they, he describes them as being created good, not as, as I imagined my childhood, did mosquitoes come as a result of the fall? These things are part of the natural world, part of that natural providence and structure. So there is built into the structure of the cosmos things that we would describe as irritants, like mosquitoes, or they can be more than irritants, of course, as we know with malaria. But things that we think of as, as problematic uh, I grew up in the Colorado Rockies where there were many rattlesnakes. Poisonous snakes were not a derivative of the, uh, of the fall. They're part of the natural world, bound by time that includes change and is by definition perishable. Augustine was a pretty good philosopher. He wasn't a systematic philosopher, but he was good. And he conceptualized this, that anything that is made by definition has to have decay. You can't have a contingent creation where decay is not endemic. If there's going to be decay, there's going to be brokenness. There's going to be change. We don't have to conceptualize a world in which the grass always stays green until Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree. Decay is endemic to a world that God creates. This, by the way, is also found earlier in Athanasius and his uh, De Econazioni. You see it in chapter four, the Econazioni in particular, that is a part of any contingent being. The City of God, book 12, chapter four. It'd be ridiculous, on the other hand, to regard the defects of beasts, trees, and other mutable and moral things which lack intelligence, sense, or life as deserving condemnation. Such defects do indeed affect the decay of their nature, which is liable to dissolution, but these creatures have received their mode of being in by the will of their creator. It can't be any clearer than that. This is not brokenness as a result of the fall. This is something that is endemic within the structure of the cosmos. Cataclysms, brokenness, all the forms of decay, multiple forms of decay that we face are something that are part and parcel of being contingent created beings. Continuing on within the same work and chapter. Consequently, in those areas of the universe where such creatures have their proper being, we see a constant succession. As some things pass away and others arise, as the weaker succumb to the stronger. This is not him talking about life after the fall. This is him talking about the cosmos at the, in its initial stages. And those that are overwhelmed change into the qualities of their conquerors. And thus we have a pattern of a world of continual transience. 
What's he talking about there? He's talking about being eaten. We have animal predation. As for those defects uh, in things of this earth, which are neither voluntary nor punishable, if we observe them closely, we shall find that in the same principle as before, they attest the goodness of the nature of themselves, every one of which has God as this author and creator. Let me um, give multiple conclusions here and then leave a bit of time for a question. This offers a study demonstrating the difference between a doctrine and the original authorial comments and the changes, alterations that can shape a doctrinal system. So we have, if you will, those who identify with an Augustinian tradition or think that they understand and represent, even if they're rejecting it, an Augustinian tradition who have profoundly misunderstood the author, and it can shape a system and its inheritance. More to the point here, in Augustinian terms, it's wrong to describe the damaging physical and biological acts of nature as evil. I think one of the problems we have is we use a phrase, at least in, I, I don't know in other languages, um, I apologize for that, but within English, we use a phrase I think is incredibly problematic and damaging, natural evil. As far as I know, and maybe one of the fossils in the room can help me with this, first, the earliest I'm aware of that phrase being used is like this. Um, Mike go earlier, don't know, someone can help with that. I think that's an incredibly problematic phrase, and it sets us up to conceptualize Augustine and others in a wrong framework when we talk about natural evil. For Augustine, there's no such thing as natural evil. It is, it is a non-category and an incredibly unhelpful category that directs us, misdirects us. And misdirects us in our thinking about the world, and if we're taking this from Augustine, misdirects us in our understanding of Augustine. We read that into Augustine. And I think that framing, which is a very common phrase used today to describe a hurricane or a disease or a tornado or what have you, a common strike, we describe as natural evil. That's, it's painful. Augustine understands these things as being painful, but he distinguishes between pain, which is endemic with decay, from evil. Pain is not the same as evil for Augustine. And that's an important point. There's an important spiritual point there that we might move on to, but I won't take that up at this moment. Original purity is found in spiritual reasoning creatures, not describing a state of physical existence, physiological. Privation is a privation of the soul. Now, the soul can affect the body, so there are ripple effects for Augustine. And we can see that in Augustinian terms, we can see that also the way we think about the world. So for Augustine, that fourth form of alienation, remember I said at the beginning, there were four forms of alienation from God, within ourselves, against others, and the cosmos. That fourth form of alienation is indeed correct, but the framing of it as the alienation between the cosmos as God would be an incorrect way of describing that for Augustine. It's alienation that I have from the cosmos. As a result of the fall, I'm alienated from the cosmos, not the cosmos from God. And so it's not that there is pain now, and I don't, I, I don't know, I can't say what would have happened in the garden. Augustine muses about that. I'll come to that in a second. But suffering then as a result of natural forces, if, if, I, if I suffer anguish as a result of natural forces, that's an expression of this alienation. The extent that I have mental anguish, sorrow, pain at what happens in nature, whether it be the disease that I experience or disease of a family member or friends, or we look at the destruction of the earth, that's an expression of this fourth form of alienation, but not that the cosmos in its own right is alienated. 
Interesting point here. Uh, some of you will have come across the phrase that's often spouted in, um, sorry, that's an unhelpful and ungracious way to describe it. It's often presented in, uh, if you will, potted histories of philosophy. You'll hear it described in uh, the 12th century, often described as the beginnings of the, of the study of nature, of the discovery of a natural world. I think that's patently wrong. <laughs> This certainly expanded and extended in the 12th and 13th century, but its origins are much earlier, and we have them here within Augustine, to be sure. Augustine can allow for change in variance, except in design. So for my science religion colleagues, um, I will, you'll know what I'm speaking of here, but Augustine, I think, would take great exception to the notions of emergence. The uh, intellectual conversation around science and religion has been a uh, conversation point for about the last 15 years within science religion dialogue. Um, it, the emergence, if I suppose if it were planned by God, it would be okay, but the accidental emergence of what sort of created being would be a worshiping being of God, um, I think Augustine would not have any time for such a position in an Augustine framework. And let me, this is the critical point here, number six, and I'm just reiterating what I've just said, but it's so critical. After the fall, humans are alienated from the creation. Nowhere do I find Augustine saying the corporeal world itself has metamorphosed, metamorphosed into something else. Nowhere do I find that. And I've read a lot of Augustine. I haven't read all of Augustine with 93 books extant and uh, a thousand sermon, nearly a thousand sermons and 300 letters. Um, I would be foolish to suggest to you that I had read all of Augustine. Uh, way too excessive. Maybe by the end of my life I will have, but I doubt that even. Um, I, nonetheless, I have searched extensively using both analytical tools, database, the data, great database of Latin texts, as well as having read an awful lot. Nowhere, nowhere do I find him suggesting that the cosmos has changed as a result of the fall. So I think this changes the conversation, at least for those that have used Augustine as a source. Uh, point, I've already noted point seven, that physical phenomena may cause pain, but not because of the uh, decadence, a new kind of decadence, it's our response. So the fall did not produce hurricanes, predation, harmful bacteria, uh, viruses. One might wonder if it's primarily that we experience the world differently. Interesting, you might say, well, what did Augustine think about the Garden of Eden? For Augustine, the humans, the pair were mortal. In being ejected from the garden, they lost the potential for, that, for the cessation of that mortality. So it was uh, the garden, the taking of the fruit in the garden, if you will, was a failure to launch. They lost the opportunity. They lost, they, they, there was a kind of pristine state within the garden. Now, remember, too, the garden is not the whole cosmos. The garden is a, is a particular place in space as the church at that time interpreted it. In the ejection from the garden, they face a, a, the cruelty, if you will, of a decaying world. So, point nine, just again, reiterating to make sure it's critical. The physical world is, what, is not by nature evil for Augustine. Now, many people who would cite Augustine, what I would say now wrongly, on the nature of the cosmos, would get this point. It's just essential. You can't read Augustine without understanding, doesn't think the world is evil. But they've, those like John Hick, who have taken this other position, have failed to think through the implications of that view to the full extent let alone working through Augustus' thought 
sufficiently enough, but to think it through. Because actually, when you think about what I've just presented, it's an obvious position for Augustine to take. When you understand how he thinks about the world, the problem he had with the Gnostic foundations that he had during his 10 years in Manichaeanism, the notion that he would reject evil, a natural evil within the world is an obvious position to understand. But despite it being obvious, many have gone the wrong direction. And I think we need to bear that in mind. So in this particular matter, the problem of evil and implications for privation theory, which I think is the signal issue of Augustinian theology, one working within the framework of an Augustinian tradition, at least, the uh, Augustinian theological system, I think can fundamentally accept evolution, granted within a theistic context, but nonetheless accept the modern sciences of evolution. We can then argue over particular issues, whether some one interpretation is right or wrong, but there's no reason, I think, carte blanche to, uh, to challenge um, evolutionary science as somehow being out of sync with uh, a Christian theological mission, at least within as one engages it uh, from Augustine. Now, coming back to myself being a historian, I've not tried to define for you the best system. I'll leave that to others in the room. Um, but my job is a bit like the gardener who first does the weeding, the weeding. My job is to get rid of the weeds so one can properly see the plot and, and organize the garden in the best form. And so I hope that this has presented a mechanism for you and perhaps a case study in how we think about the authors that we work with who shape the fr and frame the conversations that we have and often set the boundaries. We need to make sure if we're using them and to the extent that we're using them, that we're actually using them and understanding their position, not the position as was inferred. Because those, I mean, these were the people who I'm rejecting, whose position I'm challenging, are very good intellectual thinkers. I mean, uh, someone like John Hick, far more superior to me. I, I you know, I, I would recognize and honor him as a far superior thinker. But he got this wrong. And in the way he gets it wrong, he's misled others and led others down the wrong path. So it's important to bear this in mind. Finally, let me just remind you of a phrase that was critical to my father, um, used extensively. I grew up with a father as a historian, so I inherited the family business. Uh, he used to say this to me all the time. It was, it was he used to say to me, a text without a context is a pretext. <laughs> I grew up with this phrase over and over again. And this came home to me when, after I moved to England in 1999, soon after we went to Venice, and I was able to see my very favorite painting of Augustine, this painting of, by Carpaccio. And if you look at this painting, you'll see all sorts of material that is red meat for a historian of science like myself. So up in that cabinet, you can see a series of astrolabes, all various designed astrolabes, the ancient instrument for uh, reading the stars, there is a Ptolemy uh, armillary sphere above Augustine's head to the right, that thing that looks like a globe. It's not actually a globe. It's, a, it's a, the structure of the heavens, armillary sphere. You can't quite make it out, but down at his feet is sitting a nocturnal. That uh, was an ancient form of, a, 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 I wouldn't call it a telescope, but for looking at the night sky, an instrument for looking at the night sky. And you have also by his feet a, a sand clock for timing the use that was used with the nocturnal, for timing the, mo the motion of the stars, so for somebody interested in history of science, this is, yeah, this is great, full of stuff. And so I, uh, as I was working on my uh, doctoral dissertation on Augustine's uh, uh, study of Genesis, um, I had this printed out above my desk to inspire and keep me going during the long, dark days of the soul, what we call dissertating. And um, 
Then I went to Venice and saw the paintings in the school, uh, Scuola of the Dalmatian Sailors. It's quite a large painting, takes up a whole panel, but it's part of a cycle of 10 paintings, not on Augustine, but on the life of Jerome. So there you have the bullet legend, you have the death of Jerome, and the final painting in the series is this painting of Augustine. This has nothing to do with Augustine reflecting on Genesis, thinking of great thoughts, thinking, uh, thinking about the city of God, as I imagined it, to my dissertating. This is Augustine having just gotten news. This is Augustine having just gotten wind of Jerome's death. Augustine and Jerome were erstwhile uh, epistolary writers to each other. They didn't like each other very much. It was a very, it was often a very angry, though hidden, uh, suppressed kind of anger. Uh, I want, uh, I think, without time, I won't tell you about how they would do it. It was quite humorous, actually. But they would write each other very critical letters. And they had this long history of, of writing together. So here's Augustine having just heard about Jerome. He's reflecting on this life of Jerome, his experience, his, 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 uh, his relationship with Jerome. That has nothing to do with Genesis. It's a good, it's a good reminder that a text without a context is a pretext. I have misused, misunderstood this painting. I still enjoy it, by the way. But uh, now it's, it's a richer experience for knowing what its actual place is. Thank you.